The following audio is from Sand Hills Community Church. More information about Sand Hills Community Church is available at www.sandhillschurch.org. to a Christmas celebration we're going to be celebrating, um, something called Advent. Now, we're not a traditional church, but some of you did grow up in a traditional church. I grew up in a traditional church, and we did celebrate Advent, and Advent had um, a series of things that you would focus on throughout the month. And so here to help us remember all that is our worship director. Why? Thank you, Jack. Hello, Jack. How are you? So um, remind me, what is Advent all about? What are we celebrating? So Advent, we're celebrating um, Christ coming um, both his first coming and his second coming in in this world and in our lives. You know, it Advent, there's records of it going back to the 4th century, and then it changed a bit in the 6th century. But by the Middle Ages, it had to do with the coming of Christ, that that's what, the, what we're celebrating. And each of the Sundays, there's a different theme. Um, we do hope the first Sunday, um, peace the second Sunday, joy the third, and love the last Sunday, which leads up to our Christmas Eve service, the Christ Sunday or the Christ service. Yeah. But, um, you know, there's some other things about it. The first two Sundays of Advent, this Sunday and next, actually look forward to his second coming, not looking back at his incarnation at the first coming. Um, and then the next two, the last two, look back at, at his first coming. Okay, wait, wait. So for clarity then, so as we celebrate hope, it's the hope that he's returning again is right. what we're looking for. And for the next two, we'll be doing the folks right. on and his return. remaking heaven and earth. Okay, good. All right. And, you know, in all these things, again, it's like as a people during this time, we're saying he must increase, I must decrease. Because we're kind of in this in-between stage of fulfilled promise, all the Old Testament promises of the coming Messiah were fulfilled in Jesus, and unfulfilled promise, which is his second coming, which he left us with and will be returning. So, you know, the, the promise for Israel and the church is the same. It is Jesus Christ. And um, he has come and he will be coming again. Amen. Amen. You know, it'd be great is if we had some sort of video that tied into this. You know, that would be. And as a matter of fact, what? we do. Oh, Why that's don't we crazy. Play? Haggai, chapter 2, verse 1 through 9. In the seventh month... On the twenty-first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Walk, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, In a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. And the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. 
The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Amen. Amen. And that was a video actually put together by a bunch of our Sandhills people using their voices. So thank you guys for doing that. All right. Um, so, you know, one of the things that Jack and I were talking about is as we head into the celebration of Advent, uh, are we going to change the preaching schedule? You know, we're going to focus on some other things. Well, the great news about teaching through the New Testament is we're always talking about Jesus. So I don't even have to change anything. We can just keep cruising in 2 Corinthians. Now, for those of you who are thinking, well, you know, during Christmas, aren't we at least going to pause and talk about the birth of Christ? Uh, we will, just not today. You know, I'm just, and I, I'll be honest, I'm having trouble making the jump to Christmas season. I like, I, I, like, I still have a big old pumpkin pie in my fridge and lots of leftover turkey. It's hard for me to jump right into Christmas. So I need a week, get my decorations up, and then I'll be cruising with some Christmas uh, next Sunday. Uh, but for now, we're going to focus on 2 Corinthians. And th- the thing we're looking at right now is this struggle that the people are having, and it's a struggle that you live in too, where you feel like you're often caught between two things, between two worlds. I'm wrestling with the flesh and the spirit. Uh, I'm wrestling with living in this world, but looking towards the next one. Uh, so this, this whole idea of how we wrestle in life, and that's what these people are wrestling with. So if you have your Bibles handy, open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. As you're turning there, Paul is speaking to a church that he helped start, and uh, he's got a ministerial kind of crew that they've come. They've come and ministered there. But the church has struggled, and the church struggled with rejecting uh, Paul ultimately. So Paul came, planted the church. They listened to him. When he took off, some other preachers came through, but some bad teachers started teaching the people, and they led the whole church astray. And um, Paul finds out about it, and he comes back to talk to the church, and when he does, they reject him to his face. And uh, he's so frustrated by this, he leaves, and then he writes a very strong letter of rebuke, and he sends it back, and he gives it to a, a, a co-worker of his who takes it back, reads it to the church. And when the church hears it, they actually repent. They actually repent. They kind of kick out the bad teacher. Uh, they take care of some business there. They clean themselves up. And then word gets back to Paul that the church has turned back around. And so now Paul is writing back to them. That's why you have 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is his response to their repentance. Um, But really what the Corinthians are going through isn't much different than what we go through, where we're just trying to figure out things with the Lord, and sometimes we choose well, and sometimes we choose poorly. But uh, we're we're at least now on an upswing when it comes to the Corinthian church, as they are between the two influences, so to speak. Uh, Let's start now. We're going to start with 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and uh, we're going to start with verse 2, go through verse 4 for now. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you're in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. All right, so Paul's appealing to these people. He says, listen, you guys know I love you, right? This is why I'm writing this letter. And in fact, this is why I've been direct with you. This is why I've been harsh with you is because I'm trying to call you back to repentance. And it, this is one of the things, it reminds me of parenting. So I don't know, for those who don't have kids, um, parenting's really hard. Uh, you know, and, that's, and I'm in different stages now. So we went through the stages where the kids are at home. That to me, I think. Now I'm in, I'm in like stage two where the kids have launched, but they haven't really launched. They're in college, but they're not like married yet. Uh, or, or have jobs and all this kind of stuff. So 
but parenting is still difficult, but it's a different thing. Like when they were in the home, I think for me as a parent, I don't know about you, I was always second guessing myself. Did I handle that right? Did I say the right thing? Did I correct them well? And then, you know, you got all this self-doubt, like, you know, you know, what if they end up in prison because I didn't parent well? You know, like all these, you know, does anybody else do that? You know, okay. Well, my kids aren't in prison yet, so praise the Lord. But um, I, I think it's one of these things where, you know, when I was growing up, and my dad will be here in the next service, so I'll still talk about him now. I'll just change it to second, third service. So my, um, my dad was the guy who would spank you as a child, and then while you're crying, he would tell you, I'm, I'm disciplining you because I love you right? And you're as a kid thinking, it doesn't feel that way. You know, <laughs> it feels like you're just kind of mad at me, you know, kind of. But, you know, my dad too would probably tell you he's trying to figure this whole thing out. But now I'm older and I look back and I respect him because I'm like, oh, I see what you were doing there. And I did need a spanking on my behind at that time. So thank you for doing that for me. So parenting's tough. But, but here's the idea. Good parents do discipline. And discipline can be loving. And, and that's what Paul is trying to say to them. Like, the reason I've been so harsh with you is because I love you. That's why I discipline you. And it does remind me of something Scripture tells us about how the Lord works with our own lives. This comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. Now, this comment, by the way, is this is gender neutral, even though it's talking about sons, it's sons and daughters, all the children of God. And the idea is this, if you have ever felt like God is disciplining me, that's a good thing. It's actually evidence that you're a child of God, right? Uh, so that, it's a healthy thing. So this all ties into how God works. He disciplines those he loves. And Paul is appealing to them. And then he makes this weird comment, perhaps, to you uh, in verse 2. I do not say this to condemn you. So what he's saying is this, I know when you hear from me that I'm, I'm rebuking you and challenging you, then you're feeling like, oh, now you must be really mad at us. Like maybe even, maybe you've turned against us. Maybe you hate us now. And he says, no, I'm not, I'm not condemning you. Again, it's this idea that I'm disciplining because I love you. I'm disciplining because I care for you. Uh, but Paul is frustrated. They've held him with some suspicion. They're sensing that. Uh, and so he makes this comment in here. I love this. Uh, and this is, uh, continues on uh, verses two, three. Uh, to die together and to live together. To die together and to live together. So this is an interesting comment too. And so here's what he's saying to them. He, he is saying either connected, it's connected to Jesus, but it's either in this life or the next, or maybe both. That he says, listen, I know I was, I was mad at you. I rebuked you because I loved you, but, but I'm committed to you. Paul never viewed himself as a guy who starts a church and then just turns it over to the next guy and good luck with y'all. Uh, that's not what he did. He started the church and he's maintained a heart for them just like other churches. He wants them to become everything God's got for them. He says, guys, I'm so, I'm so pledged to you that, that we're in this to live and to die together. That's what we're going to do. And the idea is like either we're dying to self and we're living to Christ in this life or that we're going to go through this whole life together and one day we will die and then we're going to live forever in the kingdom of God. So somewhere in there, this connection of like, he just wants them to know, I am, I have, vowed to be with you to the end. So that, that's really an encouraging thing and a reminder of this, this, this love that, that he has with him. We are reminded of Galatians uh, chapter 2, verse 20 here. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So this idea that even we know that when you are a Christian, when you love Jesus, that there is a sense in which the old you has been crucified with Christ. The, the new you lives in the, the new life that you have in him. And so that's what Paul is connected to, this idea that we're, we're living differently because we are different. And then he gets to uh, verse 4 here. 
I'm acting with great boldness toward you, but I have great pride in you. I'm, I'm filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. So it is because of his great love that he's uh, being so bold, and, and he gets to the point where he's, he's overjoyed. And so one of the things I'm reminded of in this is that rebuke is a part of the Christian journey. It just, it just is. If you're going to love Jesus and you're going to be amidst a group of people who love Jesus, at some time, you will either feel like you have to say something to somebody about their walk, or they're going to feel like they have to say it to you. And this is actually one of the things that can lead to real, real struggles in the church. It can really cause division. But they're just, if we're all saying that this is the way we're to live, submit ourselves fully to Christ, then when we see the people around us sometimes not making those choices you feel like I probably need to say something to them. And the reason you're saying something to them is because you do care for them. You care for their walk with God. You want them to do well. And so you pull them aside and you have, and you have to rebuke them. Or others may feel that about you. And I will tell you this actually as a Christian, if you're going to be in this journey throughout the course of your life, this is just going to happen. Sometimes you'll be in the right. Sometimes you'll be in the wrong. And if you have people that love you, they're going to say something to you. One of my favorite Proverbs that deals with this comes from Proverbs 27. Uh, it says this, faithful are the wounds of a friend profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Now, I actually like this proverb, faithful are the wounds of a friend. That means when somebody cares about you enough to pull you aside and say, hey, brother, hey, sister, I'm really concerned about the direction you're going, or I'm really concerned about something you've said, or I want to challenge you to think about, you know, whatever, like this, the pull aside kind of thing. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. It means you can trust that wound. You know, it's like the surgeon who has to inflict a, a new wound to make you better, right? So that's a good thing. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. If anybody ever says, you're the best all the time, you might want to question their intentions, right? <laughs> I think that's what it's pointing out to. But faithful are the ones friends. So you can trust this. That's what Paul is saying. You can trust me. I, I'm actually, it's because I love you. I am your friend. That's why I'm saying these things to you. Let's go on to verse five. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. All right, so Macedonia is the region north of uh, Greece. And so Paul's like, hey, we've been up there doing ministry. And while we were there, we were scared because, you know, missions is hard and people are rejecting it. And we were physically threatened, uh, but then also emotionally. It's really hard on us. and We're dealing with a lot of fear. And I'll tell you what this does remind me of. This reminds me of mission work today. Like mission work today is not any different than it was historically. Like you're still going into environments, some of which are hostile and you're a little bit afraid, you know, because, you, you know, you can say, well, I trust God. Absolutely, you trust God. Uh, but a lot of martyrs have trusted the Lord, right? And so there's just this idea that, you know, God is much less concerned about our physical life than we tend to be. Um, and some people pay the ultimate price. Uh, just by example, so we have missionaries from this church who are currently serving in China. Um, I, I spoke with one of them recently, and he let me know. He said, hey, I really want to ask you to pray for China right now. Uh, because he said some things are going on here that are brand new. They haven't, they're, they've not been this way in a while. Uh, for instance, just recently, they've come to where they're no longer allowing people who are under the age of 18 to attend a church. He said, in fact, they have missionary friends who are Americans who their kids were going to church and the police would not let them go into the building. Now, that's different. Like an expat, well, if you go over there as an American, you're typically allowed to, you know, if you want to take your kids into a setting over there, you can do, do that. You can't do that. Um, he said, here's something else in the, um, or at the province, in the Henan province, and then also in the city of Guangzhou, and if you fly in and out of China, you, you may have gone through Guangzhou Airport. They're now offering a reward up to $1,500 for illegal religious activity. But you gotta, you gotta know what they mean by illegal. 
if you have a home Bible study, that's an illegal religious activity. So now your neighbors can make $1,500 cash if they will turn you in. So, like, like this is weird. Like, my friend said to me, he said, um, that if you're, a, if you're, an expat, if you're a, um, like a foreigner who's in China, they'll just kick you out and you won't be able to come back. You'll be gone. But for locals who are in the midst of illegal religious activity, and in one sense, they're not discriminating. It is Christians, Buddhists, Muslim, the whole thing. Um, they're, they're rounding up all these people. They're kicking people out of the country who are foreigners. If you're in the country, they're actually sending you to re-education camps. So this is like, he told me, he said, this is like a World War II thing, where they were rounding people up and putting them in like uh, this, this you know, kind of re-education camp, which is like a prison camp. Uh, he said, you just need to know, this is happening in China right now. And so he just asked me to ask you guys to uh, really pray for China and the protection of God's people who are there. Um, and so actually, if you guys are cool with it, I'm actually going to do that right now. Would you bow your heads with me? Uh, Father, thank you uh, for what you're doing all around the world. Um, this thing that we're doing here this morning, we're heading into Advent, we're heading into Christmas, we're excited, we're buying presents, we're putting up decorations. Lord, there's a freedom here that we take for granted. We have brothers and sisters right now who are afraid to go to a Bible study for fear of being arrested. No longer fearing just the government, but now fearing their neighbors. Lord, forgive us for taking our freedom for granted. Lord, we do pray for our brothers and sisters in China that you will protect them, that you will hide your people who just want to love you, just want to celebrate the joy they have in Christ and share that with people around them. And for your people serving you there, including our people serving you there, Lord, I pray your protection on them, that you would hide them from the eyes of the enemy, um, and that you would make strong their witness and uh, bold their proclamation, and that you would let Jesus work his way in and throughout that country, uh, that even at the highest level, people would be giving their lives to Jesus Christ. We thank you in your holy name. Amen. So it does remind me as we go through this that we're not that far removed um, experientially from a lot of things we read about the Apostle Paul writing. And also what we see in Romans chapter 8, love this reminder, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? And now it doesn't mean that people can't be against us. Clearly they can be and are, but what it does mean is that none of them are going to stand. There is no enemy that opposes Christ that will stand ultimately. We all stand before God in the end, and ultimately his people are vindicated in Jesus Christ. So as Paul is going through this, he's talking about this stuff, and he's, he's unpacking this. He says, you know, we've got this thing we're fighting out there, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also in the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoiced, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. And so he says, listen, I wrote, wrote to you guys, and listen, I want you to know, I'm, I was sorry I grieved you, but I'm not sorry, but I'm sorry. You know, and I, <laughs> you're like, hey, I wrote this to you. I know it hurt. Sorry, not really. You know, and I like, hey, that's just being real. You know, like you needed that. You needed a little kick in the pants, and that was good for you. Uh, and, but he says, you know, one of the things I loved is that we sent Titus to you. Titus rebuked you, uh, took the letter of rebuke to you, and you guys responded. And he was encouraged that you responded because he didn't know what he was going to encounter. And so it does remind me of the role of relationships in and around our world. So, I, you know, I think this. If you work in a, we'll call it a secular environment where there aren't a lot of Christians around you, like the first time you have a bad day, right, and you're angry, you're cranky, you say something you shouldn't, you get on somebody, or whatever it is, 
Somebody's going to look at you and say, oh, so that's how you really are. Now, you could have been 10 years faithful, kind, generous. You have one bad day, and they're like, oh, now we see. This is what's really inside you. You're like, I mean, I just had a bad day, man. <laughs> like, cut me some slack. So that's what happens on the, on the outside of, uh, of a Christian environment. What I would like to think happens on the inside of a Christian environment when we're brothers and sisters and we know we're brothers and sisters is that if you have a bad day and you blow it or a bad week or month or year or whatever, somebody comes up to you and they, and they challenge you, what I would like to think is that the rebuke brings a reconciliation. That's what happened with Titus, which is so weird. So he shows up to this church in Corinth that has gone astray. They've, re- they've rebelled against Paul. He shows up with this harsh letter from Paul. He reads it to the congregation, and the congregation unexpectedly repents. They're like, you know what? You're right. We're, we're wrong. We blew it. Like, we're, we're sorry. Let, we'll, let's put this back together. Let's make this right. And so Titus is like, you got to be kidding me. Are you serious? That's awesome. You know, and so then they kind of work on it. And so here's what I'm reminded of. I'm reminded of my relationship with my wife. Now, we all have relationships in which we're in that are close and tight. So for those who aren't married, you've got friendships like this where sometimes things go awry and they have to be fixed. And um, so, you know, like I made a pledge to my wife till death do us part, right? Uh, but sometimes when you're married, you're thinking about introducing that death a little earlier in the equation, right? Like that's like, it might be tough. So, but, but what you're, you're in this covenant relationship and you're like, we got to make this work. We cannot just be angry with each other. We can't just be frustrated. We can't stay silent. We've got to work through this. And either you guys are going to sit down and have enough couch time, you'll make it through. Or uh, if things are tough, you may go to counseling and try to work through some of that. But you got to get through this because you made a pledge to be together. But here's what you'll find. And this is what you find with old married couples. I mean, like couples that have been married decades, they have a bond that has been forged through fire. You know, and that thing, that's solid, right? That's what I'm shooting for for my wife. I want to be the old crusty guy that when I come to church, people are like, how did y'all stay together so long, right? Like that's what, and then we'll have this relationship that's awesome. Because in the Christian environment, typically, when you work through a rebuke and a reconciliation, your relationship is stronger on the other side of it because you realize it happened in love. Right? That's, that's the gift that we have in, in being Christians, is that we have this opportunity to work through this in love. That's what Paul is seeing right now as he deals with the Corinthians. You have been rebuked. You've responded. The idea is that we are stronger now. There's a closeness here that wasn't there before. That's why Titus can be encouraged. That's why we're encouraged. That's why we're seeing all these great things happen. Uh, He's excited about this. And, you know, hey, I know the letter hurt, but it's only for a little while. And then he gets down to verse 10. Now, when I study Scripture, for me, almost always, there is something in Scripture that is like, you know, if I'm reading a passage or a chapter, it'll be like, this is the money verse right here. So for me, in this passage, verse 10 is kind of your money verse, if you will. This is the one that's like, ooh, This is like enough reason to get excited about the whole passage we've been reading. So verse 10, let me just read it for us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So I'm going to go through that one more time and then just unpack this. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So what is it that's producing these griefs that we're experiencing? Well, part of it probably is um, approval. So when we lose the world's approval and we long to get it back, we will work to get it back so we can get the approval of mankind. And then there's a counter to that where we feel like we've done something where we've lost the Lord's approval, and then we want to work, repentance, to get that back. And uh, so let's take the two for an instance. So the world, is, the world is so fickle. You know you could be the most beautiful person in the world and you'll have a whole bunch of people that hate you, right? And you could be the most 
kind person in all the world who's very famous, and all sorts of people will hate you. And you can be the best ruler, leader in all the world, and people will hate you. Like, we're just, we're a broken people. We just, we love to hate, a lot of us. You know, it's just, just how we're wired. Um, and, and here's the thing. So anytime you begin to sense this, the world's saying to you, you're not good enough. Yeah, you're, you're to this, you're not enough that, whatever it is, like, you're, you could be better, you could be stronger, you could be more fit, uh, you could work harder, you could have more money. Like, all these things we feel like, I don't have the approval of mankind, and so I'm going to work really hard to get that back. But if you work really hard to get that, what have you really gained? Nothing. <laughs> because even if 100 people now say, oh, we, we actually approve for, of you doing this, you know, there will be another 100 that hate you. You know, like it's just, you're never going to be satisfied in that. You're, you're fighting an endless battle. So you'll never be in shape enough or have enough money or have the best position at work. It's just nothing will ever be enough if you're going to be living for the world's approval. And every time you live for the world's approval, there's always a sense of loss. It just, it just will all, you'll just never have enough. And so, like, one of the best things you could do for yourself is just release that. Like, I, I refuse to live for the approval of my fellow man. Like, I'm just not going to do that anymore. Now, I don't mean you become a cranky old jerk. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, let's get to the other side of this. What we really want is we want to be processing through uh, godly, appropriate grief, godly grief. So godly grief means this. It means that when I sin and I feel like, oh, I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed in myself. I'm disappointed in what I've done, the damage I've done. But really, more than anything, I'm disappointed in what, what I've done to the Lord. And I want to make that right. So the illustration I tend to use is this. So uh, I've got two kids um, right now, Callie and Tyler. And um, so they're, they're always going to be Philpots, right? I mean, well, okay, not technically. My daughter's going to marry. <laughs> She's planning to marry next year. She's going to have a different last name, which is Mauer, uh, which I think is kind of an odd last name. Uh, but honestly, if you had to choose between Philpot and Mauer, you know, maybe my daughter's actually winning the war. I don't know. But this idea that that she's going to be marrying this guy, but she will always be my, my blood. Like, she's my family, no matter what happens the rest of her life. Let's imagine she went through a rebellious period. Like, say she's 16, she tells me, Dad, I don't want to live by your rules anymore. I think you and Mom are foolish, and I'm just going to go do whatever I want to do. It's time for me to live my own life. And so she takes off. Like, she's still, she's still Philpot. I mean, she's still in my family. Now, she's, she's acting foolish, but she's, she's still me. Right? She's still part of this. So, now, we have a problem between us, but she, she hasn't left the family. We just got a, we got a problem here. But, but she's not like going to be back into where she needs to be until she comes back and we have a conversation and we deal with this. And I need to hear from her, Dad, I was foolish. Please forgive me. And then I can say to her, I do forgive you. Let's move forward, right? And then again, like we talked about earlier, our relationship will be stronger than ever and we'll have accomplished some like new place in our relationship. That'll be great. That's how it is with the Lord. The idea is that like if I sin, uh, and I don't know how you categorize your sin. I think God just kind of has a sin category, but maybe there's you know some highs and lows, even as He might categorize them. But one way or the other, when you sin against the Lord, and you feel like you know, Lord, I'm just so sorry. I I, I want to fix this. I want to make this right. This is when we come back and we apply First uh, John one nine. So First John one nine uh, says this: If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, this passage right here was actually written to Christians. This wasn't written to people outside the, of the faith. This is people inside the faith. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago, we did the bucket illustration. You know, yeah, but the bucket said that I don't have any sin on my account anymore. It's all in Christ's account. Okay, that's absolutely true. That is, eternally speaking, you are going to be right with God. But when it comes to how we're processing personally, individually, we have an account that we need to keep clear with the Lord. And you know when you've sinned. But here's the deal. Godly grief produces a repentance. That is, when you know you've messed up, you need to make it right. Now, I, the first step in making it right is having a conversation with the Lord. 
So you come to God and you say, like, let's imagine my wife and I get in an argument, uh, or I just sin against my wife. Just pick a sin. I sin against my wife. Uh, and so then I come to the Lord. Lord, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. I sinned against my wife. I never should have done that. Like, if the Lord was speaking to me verbally, he would say this. Like, that's great. I forgive you. Now go fix it with your wife. You're like, yeah, but I sinned against you. Can't it just be like, like no? That's like repentance isn't just me and God. Repentance is I got to fix things with my fellow man. I got to go make it right. It's like a few years ago. I had a friend of mine. He had uh, stolen from his employer. And he came to me and he said, you know, I stole from my employer. Uh, I've confessed it to the Lord. I've been forgiven. Do you think I need to tell my employer? And I was like, yeah, you need to go tell your employer. And they're like, what? Well, you know, like I, but I've already asked forgiveness. And I'm not gonna, like, here's the thing. You sinned against them as well. Part of fixing the whole thing with the Lord is making sure you fix it with your fellow man. And, you know, whether the police get involved, uh, whether you lose your job, like however this works, like you're just going to have to trust God with that. And, and so I'm also reminded of this, that even when we really go through the steps of repentance, like making it right with God, making it right with my fellow man, it doesn't fix everything. Sometimes there are just consequences to what we've done. And we just bear those, and maybe for the rest of our lives. But the, but the truth is, it, it actually produces something wonderful, because godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Without regret. That, mean, that means that at the end of the day, I can lay my head on my pillow and understand that I have peace with God. That's that peace, and some of you have been without it before, some of you are without it now. When, when you're missing that peace, going to bed with that kind of heart, it is painful. Like you feel uh, inside something's broken, something's wrong. And it's even worse when you're the one that did it, right? This idea that you may not be able to fix everything, but when you let godly grief produce repentance, it leads to a salvation without regret that I can lay in bed at peace at night because I know I'm right with God, and as much as I'm able, I'm right with the people around me even though I may have done things for which I cannot fix. Uh, I've already messed things up. So this is where the Apostle Paul is, is wrestling with these people, walking with them through this, saying this. You guys messed up, but you know what? That mess up led you to repentance. And when you repented, you turned back to the Lord. Now you're walking through this experience of salvation without regret. That's where we are in this relationship. So it was such a powerful and, and wonderful verse. Uh, verse 11. Uh, for see what earnestness the godly grief has produced in you. All right, so now, now, not only has it produced repentance, now they want to change. They want to be different. They want to change the way they're living. Also, what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear. Now, fear, like fear of what? Fear of the Lord? Perhaps fear of the Lord, but I actually think here, fear of Paul. That's what I think it is, because they just got a cranky letter from him. And so, and then he's going to visit. And so they're like, oh, he's going to show up and yell at us. So uh, maybe they're a little fear, fearful there, but Paul's like, yeah, hey, that's a good thing. What longing, what zeal, what punishment. Like, what punishment? Well, see, here, one of the things that Titus told him is that when Titus came down and he read the angry letter, so to speak, from Paul to the church of Corinth, and, and the church surprisingly repented, when they repented, there among them was the person or the people that had led them astray. The church turned on that person, and they punished them, rebuked them, challenged them, like whatever they did, it was, it was harsh. In fact, Paul said earlier, hey, y'all can back off now. Y'all have done enough to that person. You can let them go. And, um, and so this idea that they've turned now, and that was actually proof of their repentance was that they were dealing with the one who'd led them astray. At every point, you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong. Interesting, it's Paul that suffered the wrong. He just kind of goes by that kindly, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God, therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. 
But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. All right, so as he's wrapping up here, he says, uh, again, he goes back to the idea that even Titus was surprised, y'all listen. You ever have a conversation like that where you know you got to say something harsh to somebody? It's going to be direct, it's going to be painful, and you're kind of digging in for a fight because you know, I'm going to say this to them and they're going to push back. It's going to be a lot of uh-uhs and no, I didn't, and that was you, and you know, so you're kind of digging in for this thing. And so you sit down, you've arranged this talk, and they know. Like It's like if my wife ever says to me, hey, honey, when you get off work tonight, um, we need to talk about something. You know, like my whole day is going to be miserable at that point. I might as well just leave work right now. Let's go home and have this out because I can't go all day with that cloud looming over me, you know, because I already, I'm going to come home and somehow I'm going to be an idiot, you know, like I don't know what's going to end up. Uh, or something horrible has happened, but not horrible enough that I need to know right now. It's just horrible enough that you can live in guilt and fear all day and find out about it later, right? So whatever. But the surprising thing is when you arrange this conversation, you're going to have this conversation, you sit down and you say, all right, here's the deal, blah, 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 and you lay it all out there. And the person goes, you're right. I was wrong. I'm sorry. You're like, oh, I, I wasn't prepared for that. Like, because I got like a whole list of arguments here. I was kind of waiting for you to hit me back with something. Because I, do you mind if I just go through them? Because I've been thinking about them for days. Right? I may I just leave. You know, you're just not ready for that. And that, so that's what Paul's talking about with Titus. He's like, Titus shows up. He tells y'all, y'all messed up, and y'all were like, yeah, you're right. We need to fix it. You're like, oh, oh, I wasn't ready for that. Okay, that's awesome. And so then they're. Working on this, and that was the whole point uh, Paul's talking about is like, wow, y'all really pulled yourselves together. That's that's amazing. And and then he finishes, I love this comment at the end. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. Ah, does he? You know, like, does he? Hasn't he seen enough of this church to know that you should not have perfect confidence in the church in Corinth? In fact, if Paul looked at me and said, Jeff, I have perfect confidence in you, I'd be like, no, don't do that. You should not have perfect confidence in me. I'm I tend to mess up still. Like, don't do that. So here's what I think. When it comes to dealing with people, you can either deal with them in a positive way or a negative way. And here's what I've learned about people who view others negatively consistently. They don't believe people can change. Like When you're negative towards others, you don't believe they can change. When you're positive towards others, it means you believe there's hope in the relationship. Which do you think God is with us? I think it has to do with your presuppositions. Either people are static or they're dynamic. Static means you are who you are, you will never change. In fact, that's a message the world tries to sell us often. You are who you are, you'll never change. That's not true. No, people are dynamic. In fact, I would say people aren't static, they are dynamic. That means I would say this, you're not who you are and will always be. You are on a trajectory. You're either on an incline heading towards the great things that God has for you, and it may have some ups and downs, but you're generally headed up, or the decline, you know, so to speak, that, that you're becoming more and more of a person who's distant from God, and it is becoming more and more evident in your life. I think you, you tend to head one or two directions. And here's one of the things I do love about being a follower of Jesus. As a follower of Jesus, I know things can always change. Things can always get better. I can always be forgiven. And no matter how bad I've messed up, there's always a hope and a future. In fact, that's what Advent celebrates, is the idea of hope. The idea that I know I have a, a Savior who's coming back. to He loves me so much, he's coming back to get me, right? Not just me, but all of us who have our faith in Christ. And, and this, God has not given up on Jeff yet. 
Even if I have a horrible day, a horrible month, a horrible year, if I, even if I blow things completely, even if I, if I make such messes I can't fix them here on earth, God hasn't given up on me. Jesus died for my sin. I can be forgiven. Tomorrow can be a new day. And grace always abounds. There's always hope in Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, I know, I know we are a messed up people and we're a people that struggle. Lord, I, we would just thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. Lord, we celebrate uh, this Advent season of hope. And it, it's a hope looking back at what Jesus did for us. It's a hope looking future to when he comes again to get his people and to call us home. And Lord, as long as we walk in this earth, we're just going to be a broken people. Father, may it be that we, as a broken people, putting our full faith in Jesus Christ, will continue to experience daily the grace that has been purchased for us through his sacrifice on the cross. Lord, we know, even as we celebrate today the Lord's Supper, that that sacrifice of your flesh, your blood, is a gift to those who receive you in faith. We love you and we praise you in your holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Sandhills Community Church. Feel free to share this with others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information, please visit our website at www.sandhillschurch.org.